Hello, and welcome to The Unique CPA. I'm your host, Randy Crabtree. The goal of our show is to keep you at the forefront of the changing face of public accounting by having conversations with fascinating leaders and bringing you their stories, insights, and advice. The Unique CPA podcast is brought to you by Trimerit, the specialty tax professionals. Today, we're going to do things a little different, but before we get into that, I'd like to give you a little preview of uh, things we're going to be talking about in the future on the show. Uh, Coming up soon in the next month or so, we're going to have a show on generations within public accounting and how that affects the workplace. We're going to talk about data analytics within public accounting. We'll be having a conversation with a new managing partner who took over at the beginning of this year and just see how that affects uh, things within the firm, how he get, puts his, uh, his uh, thumbprint on uh, where the firm's going and how he implements uh, the new things within the firm. Uh, we're going to talk to a, a managing partner of an investment banking firm and how investment banking works in general and how that uh, field ties in with public accounting. We're going to talk to a managing partner who has gone through some health issues and how he dealt with that and where uh, that left him in the firm and how he was able to overcome those and continue managing the firm. And then we probably are going to talk about private banking too and just see what that is and how uh, uh, CPA firms can uh, get involved with the private banking end of things. But before we get to all those shows, today I was going to do things a little different. I actually did have a guest lined up, but unfortunately he got double booked and couldn't make it. So I thought, well, we're getting heavy into tax season here. I actually travel around the country doing CPE presentations on specialty tax services. So I thought today, why don't I do a truncated version of that, maybe give you some information on services that uh, uh, may be beneficial to some of your clients and uh, maybe a little thought-provoking, maybe help you uh, save some people some money this year. And, you know, whether it's something you do internally or something you outsource to a, a service provider, uh, maybe I can help identify some areas with some of your clients where there's potential tax saving opportunities. So like I said, we're going to do a truncated version of that. We're going to talk about four areas of specialty tax services today, research and development tax credits, cost segregation, 179D, which is the energy efficient commercial building deduction, and 45L, which is a credit for energy efficient residential dwellings. So we'll get into those four things. First, let's talk about R&D tax credits. R&D tax credits are a little bit, a little bit of a misnomer. Um, a lot of people still think that the R&D tax credit is something difficult to qualify for. Under the original rules defined in 1981, it was very difficult to qualify for. But in the early 2000s, the rules changed. And really, for something to qualify, it has to be new to the company that you're dealing with. So if your client's dealing with some new or improved product or process, um, there's a potential that there's uh, tax saving opportunities there. The R&D tax credit is defined in code section 41 and code section 41 puts a four part test out there. And what you need to do is look at your client's projects and see if they meet these four parts. And the first part is the permitted purpose test, which says, Basically, do we have a new or improved product, process, technique, formula, invention, or software? That's what the code says. We usually summarize that as, do we have a new or improved product or process? You know, if someone's manufacturing a widget, that widget is their product. 
how are they going to manufacture that widget? That's the process end. Both ends of that can qualify for the credit. So that's what we're looking for in general, new or improved product or process. Number two, there has to be technology involved with this project that we're working on. So some kind of hard science. What we normally see is engineering or computer science, you know, material sciences, biology, chemistry, some kind of hard science involved with the project that the client is working on. Number three, there has to be uncertainty within the project. And really, one and two are pretty straightforward. Three and four are the meat of the four-part test. We have to have uncertainty in the project. And based on the rules that came in in the early 2000s, it doesn't have to be the uncertainty level of, is this even possible to do? It can be to the level of, can we do this better, faster, cheaper? Can we do process improvements to reduce manufacturing time, reduce assembly time, uh, reduce waste? Can we save a second on our manufacturing time? Can we reduce our waste? Can we be more efficient? If so, that can now qualify. That's enough uncertainty for the R&D tax credit. And then number four, because there's uncertainty, we're going to experiment. And experimentation is simply evaluating different alternatives to see if we can come up with an answer to the solution or to the problem we have, come up with a solution to the, the problem we're having, whether it is, can we save that second? Can we save those two seconds? Can we reduce manufacturing time on this product? And, and as I'm going here, you've, you've heard me already mention manufacturing quite often. Um, it's not just a manufacturing credit. And we'll talk about other industries that can qualify for the credit as we go. But, but as long as we meet that four-part test, that project can qualify. There's a fifth overriding factor we're not going to dig deep into today, but it is economic risk. We have to take risk on for this project. Most companies are going to do that. And a lot of times it's just a contractual analysis. You can get paid for your project, but really the payment has to be contingent on on developing something successful. So that we can expand on at another time, or if anybody ever has any questions on anything like this, they can always reach out to me. But now we have a project that met the four-part test. We took on economic risk. How do we quantify that project? How do we quantify the credit? Well, we're going to look at that experimentation timeline, and we're going to see the individuals within the company that are, are touching that experimentation timeline or other costs that are touching the experimentation timeline and start to quantify the value of that credit. There's really four expenses that we normally see that come into the calculation of the credit. Number one, salaries and wages. Who within the company is doing you know, design work, testing work, prototyping work, uh, uh, setting up a machine, running a prototype, testing the prototype. We're going to look at the individuals within the company that are touching that experimentation timeline. We're going to look at outside services. It's defined in Code Section 41 as contract research expenses, but we're going to look at outside services and, and, and see if we have any of those that can qualify for the credit. We're going to look at supply costs, so materials consumed in the development process. The code actually says that equipment or tooling of a nature of subject to depreciation cannot be used in the calculation of the credit. There's some court cases that have come out in the last handful of years, there's some new regs that have come out, which has made the potential supply cost number go up in certain industries. 
If we have any time today, I'll expand on that. But know that it's a little bit of an area that has some uncertainty. And in fact, there's another court case that's coming through the system this year, which I think if it goes to a, to a ruling, will give us some more um, guidance on that and help us have more confidence on which way we should go with the supply costs. But, but just know materials consumed in the R&D process, yes, Something that looks like a fixed asset based on some rulings on some court cases, TG Missouri being one from years ago, there's a potential that some of those can come into the calculation of the credit. And then based on some prototype rules, 174 prototype rules that came out in 2014, maybe we can expand uh, the potential of projects or products that look like fixed assets that can go into the calculation of the credit. We're not going to have time to expand on those today. Just know that that's out there. More importantly then, once we have a project that we know met the four-part test and we've you know, been able to start quantifying that project, what are the industries that we really want to look at for the R&D tax credit? And I already mentioned manufacturing being number one. And manufacturing doesn't have to just be someone that's developing and manufacturing a product, that proprietary product. Contract manufacturers are actually very good candidates for the credit. So a contract manufacturer is somebody who doesn't actually design the product. Someone else gives them blueprints or schematics and says, here, go manufacture this product for me. But that contract manufacturer still has a lot of R&D in potentially redesigning that product, but even more so in the process of proven ends. They're the ones that are constantly trying to, you know, better, faster, cheaper, more efficient, those types of things. And, and they're doing R&D in that arena and that's helping them a lot. Software. Another user of the credit, software can be a straight, you know, develop a product, sell it, that can qualify for the credit. But we can also qualify for the credit if we're developing software internally to help manage our business in some way. There was some new regs that came out in 2016, which, which kind of gave us a... Um, easier way to qualify for internal use software, software we developed internally. That's out there. I'm not going to expand on that, but just be aware that internal use software, let's say an insurance company developing software that they're going to use internally either for somehow dealing with their policyholders or potentially internally like accounting and HR. Those two aspects can qualify based on these regs. Uh, the one where we have some kind of customer interaction is easier to qualify for. So those regs made it easier, actually, that came out in 16 for us to qualify for internal use software credit. Food manufacturers are, are users of the credit. Craft breweries and wineries are users of the credit. Architects and engineering firms actually use the credit as well. Uh, an issue there is we just need to make sure we're looking at contracts in those areas and make sure that that architect and engineering firm took on economic risk. Same thing with construction industry can qualify. We have to be very careful to make sure the projects qualify. We also have to be careful to make sure that uh, they've taken on the risk in, in those areas as well. And architects, there was a, a court case that came out this past year that talked a little bit about retention of rights, which is another area that we want to focus on with uh, qualifying projects. Proprietary products manufacturers, obviously, uh, no-brainer for the credit. Green industries, biodiesel, uh, cleaning products, fertilizers, those types of things can qualify for the credit. 
some non-traditional areas that could potentially qualify for the credit that we've seen credits in, lumber sawmill, recycling plant. It's not the product that qualified in that case, but the processes and the machine development. I have a nice case scenario I'd like to talk about. We have a company that looks like a service company on the surface. You look at their tax return, they're probably a service company on the tax return it shows. But what they do is they go out and work on big pieces of machinery. While they're out there, they notice that these machinery often maybe are out of date, they're running slow, they can improve it by developing new modules and fixtures that then they add on to that piece of machinery and allow it to work faster. So it's a company that's out fixing machine, but at the same time, they're developing new modules, new components to add to those machines and help those machines run better. And therefore, they get a credit as well. Internally developed software we talked about. So those are some basic industries. There's, there's really, if you look on the IRS website, you'll see that the R&D tax credit has been taken in just about every industry out there. And we're you're seeing an industry take the credit where you wouldn't expect it. A lot of times it's based on software. There's, there's obviously clients you can pretty easily eliminate for the credit, but a lot of times there's hidden credits in software development. What's the value of these credits for these industries? On average, about 10% of the expenses that we accumulated in that experimentation timeline become the credit. You know, it's not unheard of for, let's say we have a $10 million injection molder. $10 million injection molder very well could have a million dollars of salaries, wages, supply costs that can go into the calculation of the credit. And that would end up being about a $100,000 credit. So it's a very significant tax benefit to taxpayers. A $10 million software developer will have a significantly larger credit, most likely than a $10 million manufacturer. So the size of the business related to the credit depends on the industry that they're involved in. But give you another example, $12 million craft brewery, $75,000 a year credit. We, we deal with a engineering firm that's about a, a billion dollars in revenue and they have about a three to four million dollar a year credit so the credits can be large but our common user of the credit is the you know 10 to 50 million dollar manufacturer uh, that's getting a you know two three hundred thousand dollar credit so it's a nice savings for them so that that, that just gives you a little bit of uh, background on the credit and industries there has been some significant changes to the credit that have happened in the last handful of years. One of those was the PATH Act. The PATH Act made three changes to the R&D tax credit. The first being it made it permanent. Uh, that was great. The second two really have helped most of our clients more than the permanency. The, the credit was always there. Uh, it always was renewed every year or two. So we knew it was going to be there, but being permanent is nice to have now. But really, more importantly, the biggest hurdle we had to using the credit in the past was AMT. If a client was in AMT and most of our pass-throughs were affected by AMT at some level, uh, they couldn't use the credit or they could use a portion of the credit. The PATH Act defined certain companies, and those companies are companies that have $50 million or less average gross receipts for the last three years. Those companies can ignore AMT now and use the credit. So that was a a really significant benefit to a majority of taxpayers out there because majority of who we dealt with were pass-throughs. And in the past, we may have had to not turn them away, but tell them it may not have made sense to use the credit at this point because there was just no benefit. 
we don't really have to do that for most of our clients anymore because the, the PATH Act changed that. The other thing the PATH Act did is define companies that could use the R&D tax credit and offset a portion of their payroll taxes, a portion of their 941 taxes. And those are companies that are less of $5 million in gross receipts today and no gross receipts further back than the last five tax years, including the year we look at, we're looking at currently. So they can be in business for 10 years as long as there was no gross receipts further back than the last five tax years and they're under $5 million in gross receipts today. We can make an election to take a portion or all of their R&D tax credit up to $250,000 and offset employer portion of Social Security taxes. So that is more of a startup rule, but that allowed these startup companies to be able to use the credit even if they weren't in a tax situation. That's some of the things that happen currently. I guess we can expand on that a little bit with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. That didn't directly affect the R&D tax credit, but indirectly, it did. The credit's tax-affected. I haven't mentioned that, I don't think, yet, but it's tax-affected. So if we have a $100,000 credit under the old rules before the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the value of that credit was $65,000. You reduce it by the 35% tax bracket. Today, under the new rules, that $100,000 is worth $79,000. We reduce it by the 21% corporate rate, no matter where it's going to be used. So the value of the credit went up. Corporate AMT went away. And individual AMT is less prevalent. So even if we're a $50 million or over company, that has really, the, with the AMT changing now, the, the credit is more user-friendly, even if we're outside of that. I think that's where we're going to end on the R&D tax credit portion of today. Uh, as you can see, it's, it's going to be a pretty beneficial credit out there. There's a lot of users of the credit and the tax savings could be pretty significant for taxpayers. What I want to do now is get into cost segregation just for a few minutes. A lot of you are probably familiar with cost segregation and just as a quick definition, Cost segregation is, is taking a depreciable property, a 27 and a half year uh, residential rental property or a, a 39 year commercial property, non-residential property. And what we're doing is we're looking at that property that has either the 27 and a half years or the 39 year depreciation basis. And we're trying to pull it out into components and see if there's some components we can depreciate over five years, seven years, um, 15 years, and even some cases, one year with bonus depreciation. So what we're doing is we're trying to accelerate depreciation in those properties, get that, that expense today or over the next few years rather than over 39 years or, or 27 and a half years. So it ends up being a timing value of the expense, but getting that expense today is a lot worth a lot more to that taxpayer than getting that expense 39 years from now. Different properties will be accelerated at different rates. You might have a manufacturing plant which could potentially have as much as 60% of the cost that went into that property accelerated to a, a quicker life. Um, and you can have a maybe a senior living, assisted living property where maybe it's 10 to 25% of those costs could be accelerated. But anywhere in between, there's, there's an opportunity to accelerate those costs. And this can be from a purchase. It can be 
new construction, it could be renovations, it could be leasehold improvements, it can actually be step-ups uh, in basis uh, uh, for inheritance as well. We could look at that and we can try to accelerate those depreciations. There's different areas and it doesn't actually matter when this event occurred, we can take the additional depreciation on the current year tax year by doing a 3115 change of accounting method on the current tax return. So that gives you just a quick overview of what cost segregation is. The next one I want to get into is 179D, which is the energy efficient commercial building deduction. That actually expired at the end of 17. I think it was late in last year. It did get retroactively extended to the beginning of 2018. So there was no skip, no gap in time where it didn't exist. And then that goes through 220 right now, 2020 right now. So what is this? This is accelerated depreciation as well, like cost seg, uh, but it's accelerated depreciation that we get for showing that our building is more energy efficient today than sometime in the past. And that time in the past varies depending on the year that the improvements were placed in service. But it's at this point either 2001 or 2007 we're going to compare to. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at that building. We're going to see if that building is 50% more energy efficient today. Let's assume it's a 2019 building. Is that building 50% more energy efficient today than it hypothetically would have been in 2007. And I say hypothetically, because what we do is we, we computer model that building as if it was meeting 2007 energy usage standards. We computer model that building today as constructed or remodeled. In this case, it's a construction or remodel. Purchase doesn't count, a step up in basis doesn't count. We're looking at us doing something physically to that building. So construction or remodel, if we can show it's 50% more energy efficient today by computer modeling that building today, computer modeling that building in 07, then we get a dollar eighty a square foot deduction. So we're gonna take in, in a commercial building, obviously, we're gonna take 30 year nine year property and we're gonna take a dollar eighty a square foot for that property and take it in one year. So it really accelerates that depreciation. It's also limited to the cost of the improvement, but but a lot of times we'll get to the dollar eighty a square foot. If we do not show that that building is 50% more energy efficient today, then what we do is we can break it down into individual components, those being HVAC, lighting, and building envelope. And if we could show that we're 15% more energy efficient in HVAC, we get 60 cents a square foot deduction. If we can show 25% more energy efficient in lighting, we get 60 cents a square foot deduction. And building envelope, if we're 10% more energy efficient, we get 60 cents a square foot deduction. So those three are the dollar 80, but if we don't hit the 50%, then we can break it down to those individual components and see if we can meet one of those and become more energy efficient. Uh, and, and get at least 60 or $1.20 a square foot rather than the $1.80. So that's, that's the 179 D. Now there's two users of this. There's, there, actually there's more than two, but generally there's two users. There's the owner of the commercial building where we get accelerated depreciation, but then there's also government buildings. If we have a government building, the government doesn't get this additional deduction because they can't use it. They're not taxpaying. 
what happens is the government entity is allowed to allocate this deduction to the designer of the improvement that, that uh, created the energy efficient portion of this building. So that's often the architect or the engineering firm, general contractor, mechanical contractor, usually one of those has, has designed this improvement and therefore they can have that deduction allocated to them. And when they do that, that's not accelerated depreciation to them. That's really an additional free deduction that they get. That's a Schedule M adjustment where now they're taking a deduction on their tax return that, that's not on their books. So it's very beneficial to them. And a lot of times they're very profitable so they can use that extra deduction. And those are really the two users of this. You can actually have you know, leasehold improvements qualify as well. But the two more major users are the commercial building owner or the designer of a government building. There's one last area that I'd like to talk about a little bit, and that is 45L. What 45L is, is a credit for the construction and development of energy efficient residential properties. So in this scenario, the developer, the, con the construction company that owns this property as it's constructed can get up to a $2,000 a unit credit. Now, this one's not a deduction. It's actually a credit uh, if we meet certain requirements for those properties to be considered energy efficient. So if we have a construction developer company that has a you know, 100 row homes that they just developed and it meets the requirements, there's a potential $200,000 tax credit available for them in that area. I'm not going to expand on that anymore. We're at about a half hour. That was my truncated version of a CPE presentation I do around the country. Hopefully that was helpful for you. Hopefully, you know, maybe you, maybe you think about a client that you weren't thinking about before where there's some potential areas you can you can help them with. If anybody has any questions on this, you can always um, contact me. You can get my contact information off of our website, try-merit.com, or you can email me directly, randy.crabtree at try-merit.com. I really appreciate you listening to this different version of the unique CPA today. And I look forward to uh, presenting additional uh, information to you in future episodes. Thanks for listening.